This is an ABC podcast. In June last year, there was a Black Lives Matter demonstration in the city of Edinburgh, birthplace of the 18th century Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. There's a statue of Hume on one of the main streets in Edinburgh, and during the protest, someone hung a placard around its neck with the words, I am apt to suspect the Negroes to be naturally inferior to the whites. Those words were written by David Hume in one of his essays, and it wasn't long before the wind of protest was blowing in the direction of Edinburgh University, which had named one of its buildings David Hume Tower. By September, that building was rechristened 40 George Square. The whole affair gave rise to one of those perennial debates around how we should deal with the legacy of thinkers from the past whose views are offensive in the present. The vast bulk of Hume's work is eminently reasonable stuff. Indeed, he's one of the most well-regarded philosophers in the modern Western canon. Someone who's been thinking a lot about all this is the British writer and philosopher Julian Bagini, who has a new book out titled The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. Julian, welcome. I want to begin with Hume's relatively slender public profile. He's widely admired. He's one of the most popular philosophers among other philosophers, but he's never really attained the the cultural status of a a Nietzsche or a Wittgenstein or a Socrates. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think there's various elements. There's kind of a perfect storm of (laughs) to keep him sort of like quiet. I mean, first of all, He's not a person of extremes. You know, one of his great strengths, he's someone of kind of moderation and not so much common sense, but just a kind of a gentle reasonableness. And of course, most of the philosophers who capture the public imagination, they're a bit more extreme, a bit more like Nietzsche, you know, they're kind of like, they're, they're more challenging in that kind of vigorous way. I think another thing is that he's simply not very well known for anything too practical amongst the general public. And even in philosophers, in philosophy, people talk about Hume, they talk about his theories of causation, his ideas about how the mind works, and and they they can be quite abstract and quite difficult topics to deal with. He did write about religion and free will, and and is sometimes quoted on those subjects, but he's he's best known for stuff which is really quite academic and and, and a bit difficult to get into. And it's it's, it's also just not obvious, actually, that you'd go to Hume if you're interested in, you know, living the good life. Because although I think those ideas are sort of, you know, they're just weaved into his work from beginning to end. They're they're not kind of in the foreground. He doesn't kind of offer you a kind of a a slogan for this is how to live, you know, this this is the good life. Um, so I think for all these kind of reasons, he sort of got a bit under the radar with people. Okay, and so in spite of the subtitle of your book being What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well, it you've got to read the whole book, right? Because his philosophy doesn't boil down to a, a digestible set of rules for living. Yeah, that, and that's right. And I think it is true. This is also the life and work together, I think. It's, it's you know... Philosophy in the English-speaking world, it's changed a bit recently, but for a long time, was very indifferent to biography. You know, what mattered were the arguments, as that's what people would say. But I think that people are beginning to realise more, that it's more complicated than that. And actually, you can sometimes learn quite a lot by, by looking at the life as well as the works of the philosopher. And the other thing is that Hume wrote in his lifetime a lot of these essays, lots of short essays. Uh, some of them date... Enormously, because like journalism, they refer to events that are very current at the time but have lost interest. And others are remarkably 
enduring and, and still speak to us. But those essays, again, they're, they're not the things that are studied in university departments. They're, they're kind of considered, you know, sidelines. And it's often in those essays that you get a lot of these, these comments. And also his correspondence as well. You know, his correspondence is a, a tremendously interesting source of, of reflection upon those more practical matters of, of how to live. There's a radical scepticism in Hume's work, and, and this is something that critics of his time complained about when he, when he published uh, A Treatise of Human Nature in 1739. It was, it was not an immediate success, and his contemporaries complained that it pulled the rug out from under any foundation for belief in anything much at all. How much of a sceptic is Hume, and what's the focus of that scepticism? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I think it's it's quite a tricky one. And I find even in scholarship, people, I think, get him a bit wrong. The whole point about Hume was, in some ways, he's a very radical sceptic, in the sense that he does not believe that by the use of reason alone, one can establish any of the most fundamental truths required for living. In particular, the very existence of cause and effect. All, all scientific reasoning, every hypothesis we have, about how the world works is based upon an assumption that events have causes and there are regularities. And he argues very sceptically that we don't have a, a, a logical argument for that and nor actually do we observe that directly in nature. So a lot of his arguments have that highly kind of sceptical tone, but the reason he's not the extreme kind of Pyrrhonic sceptic, and you know, Pyrrho was the great total sceptic of ancient Greece, he explicitly contrasts his position with that. And his point is this, that when you sort of push your reasoning to its limits as a philosopher, what you discover are, is that there are some things which reason cannot establish. There are some things which have to be taken as true. They absolutely have to be. And experience tells us that we have kind of right to take them as true. But our arguments will be weak. And, and he says that those are the things we have to embrace. So Whereas the really, really sort of Pyrrhonic sceptic um, finds the absence of rational arguments for certain fundamental things as reasons to, to suspend judgment on anything, Hume says, no, that's just a reason to understand the limits of human rationality and human reason. So in practice, he, he doesn't live like a sceptic at all. And the cause and effect issue is particularly interesting in philosophy because you still find your know, philosophy textbooks. And there are some scholars who say that you know Hume did not believe in cause and effect as a real power in nature. It, he simply believes in it as a kind of a regularity. And I think that's just, to me, obviously not true. He doesn't believe in it as a real power in nature. What he doesn't believe is that by observation or by logic, we can establish with certainty that such a power exists. Rather, it's a kind of an instinct and nature to believe that it exists. And thank God that we do believe it exists because otherwise nothing would make sense in the world. How does that relate to his arguments against various aspects of religion then? Is, is it a similar line of reasoning that he uses? I think there are similarities there. And I th I, again, I think that a lot of his arguments against religion do depend upon accepting as true the fact that there is such a thing as cause and effect and so forth. So um, I think the arguments against religion sort of tell you that he must be something of a realist when it comes to the way the natural world works. But essentially, you know, with, with religion, I think this is a, a fundamental asymmetry. If you want to believe, you cannot give up belief in cause and effect, for example. You cannot give up uh, belief in, in sort of the, the truth of certain historical facts and so forth. We absolutely depend upon these. In religion, the things we're asked to accept without conclusive evidence 
are things that we not only can entirely give up, but they're things which the rest of our knowledge would, would suggest that we, we should give up. So if, if you give an example of this, um, you know, the argument that there has to be a first cause, this is a very you know, famous, uh, hoary old argument for the existence of God. There has to be a first cause of things. Now, Hume doesn't kind of dispute that, actually. <laughs> Everything must have a cause. But he says that the way we reason about causes is that we, uh, based on observation and regularities that we have observed, so if I see a house at the end of the street, I assume it has a house builder because everything we know about houses tells us that houses have builders. Um, if I see a spider's web and I have no idea, I've never seen a spider before, I have no idea how that got there. And I'd be very silly if I thought, oh, this means it must be someone who, who sewed it. There must be some sort of seamstress who came down and sewed these things because I have no reason to think a seamstress would have made such a thing. And his point is that when it comes to the ultimate origins of the universe, we simply have no experience to guide us. We have no idea whatsoever. So um, actually, I'm actually confusing two arguments here in a way. So first of all, yes, there must be some kind of first cause, but we have no idea what that cause is. And secondly, if we look to the kind of, you know, the apparent design in nature, the fact that it seems to have a certain order, we have no idea what kind of thing creates that order. In fact, we have more of an idea now because um, science has progressed since Hume's time. So, so Hume is very much against people plugging the gaps of our ignorance with religious speculation because it's not grounded in any proper experience. But he is perfectly happy for us to plug the gaps in our in our rational reasoning by things which are borne out by experience and which are absolutely essential for us to make sense of the world at all. He, he had a very interesting take on reason, a sceptical take on, on the efficacy of reason, which is that, very famously put, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. That's from a treatise of human nature. What did he mean by that? Yes, I think that was one of those times where he, the slogan's a bit too colourful in a way. Um, but but the, the point is this, that when it comes to fundamental issues of motivation in human life, reason doesn't give you anything at all. So, for example, let's take something which people might say is obvious. They might say, well, well surely no. For example, um, we do know that if you kind of don't eat properly, don't exercise and so forth, you know, you're going to get ill, you're more likely to get ill or die, and therefore we have reason, to, reason tells us we ought to do these things. Well, actually, if you think about it, that's not true at all, because reason doesn't tell us that we ought to stay alive, <laughs> that we ought to look after ourselves, you know. It's not irrational to think that, you know, just going to go for it and self-destruct, you know. I mean, this is, a lot of people, when they're young, actually embrace this. <laughs> they think, that, you know, live, live fast, die young. Um, reason doesn't tell us that it's a good thing to try and look after your health and live a long thing. It's a desire we have, a very natural desire that we have. And Hume says that's also true of ethics. Reason doesn't tell us that we ought not to harm others. What tells us we ought not to harm others is we have this thing called you know, human sympathy. We, we appreciate the fact that other people suffer. We don't like it that they suffer, and that sympathy means we, we don't harm them. That's not reason that tells you that. And it, yeah, it's been observed by various people, actually, that the psychopath, the, the problem with the psychopath is not a failure of logic or reason. It's a failure of feeling. So he's saying when it comes to fundamental motivations, reason doesn't give you any. It's got to come from something else. Now, the reason I think the slave of the passions is slightly um, too, too much is that nevertheless, I, I think that when and Hume exhibits this 
trade himself. When we reflect upon what we're doing and so forth in relation to our desires, we often find that we engage in behaviours which are self-destructive, self-defeating and so forth. And, and these, these things can therefore even change our feelings. So if you take an example of this, you know, a lot of people would have felt in many times of history that feelings of racism or sexism, for example, that these were just natural feelings. And if, if you took too literally the idea that reason is just the slave of the passions, you could say, well, people feel these prejudices and their reason should simply be there to help them to, you know, act upon them in the most rational way. Well, actually, that's not true. When we use our reason and we think about, you know, why should we consider people of a different skin colour or different gender to be inferior, we find that there is no sort of relevant difference here. And that changes our feelings towards them. So I think that if he misses out something in his account, it's the ability of rational reflection to change how we feel uh, rather than simply to respond to how we feel. This is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. I'm speaking this week with British author and philosopher Julian Bagini, who has a new book out on the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, a figure who's been comfortably ensconced in the Western canon for some 300 years, but whose views on race were very much of their time and grievously out of step with the present. More to follow. I think the thing that most people who aren't philosophers will know about David Hume right now is that Edinburgh University has a building that was named after him, David Hume Tower, until September last year when they changed the name after a public campaign against Hume and certain racist opinions expressed in his work. What was that all about? Yeah, well, you know, it's undeniable. It's there in a footnote in an essay he wrote the exact words actually change according to the addition of his works because he revised his works a lot. But the essence is he said he was apt to suspect that the Negro and certain other non-white races were essentially less uh, you know, intelligent than those of the whites. And his, his only evidence for this was the apparent um, lack of comparative development in a lot of these societies compared to, to Europe. So that's what he said in a footnote, and he undeniably said it. It is undeniably uh, racist. Now the question is, what does one say about this? And I think there are two opposite but equally simplistic responses which we should avoid. One is to simply say, he was a man of his time, what do you expect? Get over it, right? And the other is to say, that's appalling, that's racist, let's let's cancel him, whatever the latest sort of term is. I think both these things are too simplistic. Now, what's disappointing about Hume's racism is that his kind of evidence-based approach to things would suggest that he should have been far more careful of that. In a sense, he had the intellectual tools to kind of see that he was wrong. And, you know, some of his contemporaries did do that. So one of his critics actually explicitly uh, wrote and, and, and showed why he was wrong, and Hume f failed to recognise that. So I think that you have to accept this is a, a massive failing on his part. I don't think that's a reason to damn his whole system, because the unfortunate these people are very unrealistic, you know. I mean, even the greatest minds and the greatest people in history have some most extraordinary blind spots. I mean, Gandhi... Even Gandhi, that great paragon of peace and non-violent protest, said many negative things about black people. 
So I do think that it would be wrong to judge him by the standards of his time, but it's also wrong just to give him a free pass on it. We have to accept this is a blemish on him, and it does, it does stain him. Well, you've written about the British classics scholar Edith Hall, and she defends Aristotle from the charge of misogyny by saying that we should ask ourselves whether or not he would be likely to hold those same views about women today in the light of the fundamental spirit of his work. The same goes for Hume, is that what you're saying? I think that's right. And I think that when you do find examples of misogyny, racism, all these things in uh, figures of of the past, I think there's a strong tradition now of asking yourself, is this indicative of something structural in their thinking that we should be wary of? So then there's quite a lot of people who argue that a lot of these so-called, you know, dead white males, these great so-called great thinkers, if you actually look at their comments on race, they're not incidental. They're indicative of kind of an inbuilt kind of structure of patriarchy, imperialism, and so forth. Now, I don't just, just don't think that applies to Hume at all. I think if you look at all the major principles and, and things that Hume advocates, there is no doubt that he would have no time for holding any belief which was clearly in contradiction to the evidence, which, you know, the kind of so-called scientific racism, which he seemed to be endorsing at the time, just doesn't stand up at all anymore. How did Hume die? And by that I mean, what did he die of? But also, how did he, how did he face it? Is this one of those, is this a, a, an example of the philosophy and the biography informing each other in some way? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. His, his death is remarkably well recorded. I mean, in some ways it's not dramatic. He had some kind of, probably some kind of stomach cancer of, of some kind. You know, it, it took him a good few years to sort of die. He sort of, it happened quite, quite gradually in that sense. But the way he faced it, he faced it with great equanimity. He was known as a great infidel, which was actually very unfair compared to the, the French philosophers who were vigorously atheistic. He was, he, he was like an agnostic atheist in the sense that he didn't believe you could prove that God didn't exist, but he, he thought that God was just, we had no reason to think God exists, so we, we live as though he didn't. So he was an in-practice atheist, but not of the dogmatic kind. And I think it was, I, I always remember who was rich, but I think it was Boswell or something came to visit him on his mm-hmm, deathbed because yeah. he wanted to sort of see how a, an atheist would die and, was, and he was just shocked at how Hume was so okay with it all. He couldn't quite believe it and it kind of rocked his faith. So it is, it is in that sense a, a, you know, a model death. Well, he did write in his autobiography, didn't he, that if he could relive any part of his life, he might choose the last part. That was, I, I thought that was quite an extraordinary thing to, uh, an extraordinary sentiment of his. Yeah, no, it was, it was. It does seem sort of strange, but I think that in his last life, he, he, you know, he had the satisfactions. I mean, he was ambitious in, in, in lots of ways, not, in, not for power and not for wealth, although, he, again, he was unapologetic about wanting a sufficient level of material wealth, you know, um, in order to live comfortably and not have to worry, to be a person of means. And again, I mean, you know, philosophers are often, people expect philosophers to be more austere, to be totally unconcerned with the things of the world. But this this is ridiculous. Even Socrates, who is held up to be this kind of paradigm, well, you know, he lived in a society where as a free man of Athens, he would have had the services of a couple of slaves, you know, and he had the hospitality of his friends. He wanted for nothing. 
in a society in which nobody had you know, smartphones and DVDs or anything like that. So, um, you know, wanting for nothing was, was, was quite easy to achieve. And, and, and Hume did want that kind of material security, but having achieved it, he was very happy. He, he, he'd written his works, he'd been successful as a man of letters, which is what he wanted to be. And yeah, he could just then enjoy his older age, editing his works, enjoying the company of people, conversation, reading, still reading, making notes, corresponding. You know, it, it, it was in lots of ways a great part of his life, the illness notwithstanding. Well, you might be tempted to say that he faced death in a stoic manner, but that would be stoic with a small s rather than a, a capital S because his attitude to stoicism was one of emphatic rejection, stoic philosophy. On what grounds? Yeah, well, this is interesting. Again, I mean, stoicism is very uh, yeah, popular philosophy of the day. It tends to be stoicism. And I, I do have these kind of friendly disagreements with, with a lot of people who are advocating this because I, I think that what most people are advocating as stoicism isn't. And to, to put it a bit provocatively, and um, please do write in and complain if you are a modern Stoic, I think that what Stoicism gets right is not uniquely or distinctively Stoic. And what is uniquely and distinctively Stoic isn't right, okay? Um, and and but because a lot of the Stoics did uh, write about very, very useful and true things very eloquently, it, these ideas get associated with them. So look, here's the idea. As a young man, he was very taken by the Stoics and he kind of took on their message that, you know, by an appropriate kind of training of the mind, you could kind of, you know, make yourself almost, you know, invulnerable to the, the tides of fortune and so forth. You become self-reliant. All you needed to do was to uh, focus on your own reason, what was in your power, and you could live happily. And Hume actually had something of a breakdown as a young man, which... He, he later put down to simply uh, working too hard. And in a sense, one of the things he worked too hard on was that kind of stoic practice of trying not to care about things, trying to only to care about the development of his mind and his intellect. And what he concluded instead, he, he said the stoicism was essentially, you know, too refined a philosophy for human beings. You know, human beings actually need things like, you know, good company. They need their relations to others, even though they make us uh, vulnerable. Uh, we need our pleasures as well, you know, the pleasures of good food and company and rest and relaxation. And a lot of modern Stoics would say, yes, yes, the Stoics, the Stoics would accept all of that, but I, I'm not convinced. But whatever the scholarly debate is, he, Hume rejected the more austere version of Stoicism, which is like basically indifference to everything apart from your own virtue, which was essentially a matter of the intellect, and instead embrace the idea that the Stoics, what the Stoics were right about was that one should minimise one's concern for the incidentals in life. One should try not to get uh, uh, too bothered about power and wealth, things that are not in your control and so forth. But it's not the same as not caring at all about those things. And that's why, again, he, he didn't meet his death stoically, because the point is the stoic response to his death would have been all that I'm leaving behind is of no value whatsoever and so it doesn't matter <laughs> whereas um, or is of minimal value it doesn't matter for Hume it was a case of the things I'm leaving behind are, are wonderful life is a wonderful thing and I will miss it but it would be silly to kind of live my life as though I have a right to these things forever I've had as good a shot as I could have had for that I must be grateful. Well you also make the point in your book that 
Hume's willing acceptance of death wasn't the result of some sort of lifelong philosophical training in that Stoic tradition or any refined intellectual perspective. It was more a temperamental thing, just, just the kind of guy that he was. And I wonder if that suggests something about what we should expect from philosophy. If, if Socrates said that philosophy is a preparation for death, Hume's example seems to say that the goal of philosophy should be something less lofty than that. I think this is a really tricky issue. It's something that I've kind of struggled with to a certain extent for a very long time. Many, many years ago now, I, I wrote a paper on philosophical autobiography, in which I had to read a lot of autobiographies of philosophers at the time in which there weren't too many. And a lot of them were dreadful, I have to say. But, I mean, what was so striking was that when you read these things, it becomes totally obvious that the kind of philosophical positions that people held were deeply tied with their with their personalities and their dispositions. And that, you know, the idea that they were simply following the argument wherever it leads, as that famous Socratic um, injunction goes, was false. And so that leads to the kind of sceptical worry that philosophy is just little more than a rationalisation of what we believe by temperament. But I don't think that is, it's not quite like that at all. I mean, you know, Hume did learn things. He did, you know, he experimented with the, the Stoicism. He, he learned to adapt things. He changed his views on religion. As a young man, he, he had his faith. Philosophy can help us to change our views and, and it can lead us in certain directions. But I think that we have to accept the fact that when it comes to how we, how we find ourselves in day-to-day -day life, you know, it can never do all the heavy lifting. There are certain elements of personality and character which are just going to have an influence. If you're, you know, if you're blessed with a happy-go-lucky disposition, then you're probably not going to be plunged into depression by reading Nietzsche. <laughs> um, at the same time, you know, if you're someone who is of a more neurotic character personality type, then it's very unlikely that reading philosophy is going to make you entirely placid and calm. In fact, I sometimes think that a lot of the people who are attracted to um, philosophies which promise kind of serenity and calm are, are drawn to them precisely because it's not something that's naturally in their disposition. And they find it helpful because it pushes them more in that direction. You know, it helps to alleviate their anxiety to adopt a philosophical view which um, gives them reasons for being less anxious. But it doesn't, I think it very rarely cures. We may have the testimony of some people who can claim that it absolutely has done in a sustained and long-term way rather than short-term. But I think, you know, just anecdotally and by experience, um, for example, you know, being a stoic doesn't mean you're not going to get depressed or have breakdowns or whatever it might be that a person... Uh, might have. But a lot of people find that it helps helps them to sort of minimise the risk of that and perhaps minimise the extremity when it comes and to help them through it. So I just think we need a bit of honesty really about the fact that, you know, the way we respond to philosophical systems and beliefs is not just a matter of following uh, the facts, you know, it's also a matter of uh, how these ideas make us feel is not something which is determined entirely by the ideas themselves. Julian Bagini. His book is The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. Publication details on the website. That's The Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. 
Thanks for joining me. I'm David Rutledge. You can get me on Twitter at David P Zone, and you can also get me right here on the program again next week. See you then.